All right. Shabbat Shalom for the second time tonight. Welcome to the Late Late Show at the Unexpected Cosmology for those of you who are still awake. Of course, my name is Noel Joshua Hadley. Uh, happy to be here. I hope you guys are too. You know, I just finished the Torah portions, which we go through every Shabbat. And recently I've been going through the book of creation. And again, last week we... <laughs> I had one chapter left. I wish I would have stuck with it and finished it. It's like, what am I going to do now? Make a video on one chapter. But anyways, this week I wanted to do something a little bit different than what I normally do. And of course, here at the Unexpected Cosmology, we are small-time book publishers. Uh, love to put out uh, books on alternative history or you know the, the the unknown greater realm type of stuff. And this book right here, Mythical Monsters, Dragons, Sea Serpents, Unicorns, Fact or Fiction, is a book that I got my hands on originally a decade ago now or so. Blew my my mind. And just so you guys know, Charles Gold here, he, uh, he is under the impression that all of them are legit. And I'm going to be reading tonight just from one chapter, uh, Sea Serpents. Now, so every, just so everybody knows, we do have this book available at the uh, at the bookstore, the Unexpected Cosmology. I'm going to have to put a, a link for it. On, I should have a link to the website, but maybe I should put a link directly to the book for those of you who want to check it out. And this is not actually the book I'm reading from. I kind of you know did some copy-paste work over here for this presentation, uh, just so you guys know it looks a little bit different than the actual book. Now, Sea Serpents is something that I have been uh, – passionate about as a, a kind of a side passion hobby kind of interest for a very long time you know i've i'm gonna i look out at the horizon on the ocean all the time and just just look for it was, i just want to see a sea star. i just want to uh just want to I, I heard that the last like uh verified uh report that at least i've seen uh, was one was spotted off of boston in the 1970s to the point of like washed up on the beach apparently they cut it up uh we're not gonna go that uh close in history but charles gold was really impressive because this was written in the 1800s uh you know his contemporaries were like charles darwin right back then and i don't know what sort of libraries he was digging into maybe he had all the sources in front of him uh but I find this very impressive that he was able to go to all these different libraries or whatever, get all these newspaper clippings on these different reports, looking to journals, all sorts of stuff. Um, I will give a quick story on my love of sea serpents. Unfortunately, right now, you guys can see I'm in my, my quote-unquote office. I'm in a hotel room. Uh, I come here because I voluntarily, every year, my wife and I and children, we come and live in a fifth-wheel trailer down on the beach in Florida, and we're here for like three months. So I'm not at home right now. I come to the hotel room so that I can get a good recording space. Uh, but normally, if you were to see me go live in my videos back home in Charleston, I have behind me an actual uh, illustration of a sea serpent. Now, the story on this is that we were uh, traveling through Europe. We were you know, living kind of country hopping one month at a time or so. We were in Oxford for a month. And uh oxford man, like the secondhand stores there like if you've ever been to a used bookstore forget everything you've ever you know seen in an american used bookstore like in oxford right they have resident professors there who have very large libraries and are reading books that you know probably don't exist if you get my drift uh c.s lewis for example had 
you know, I went to his house there where he was a resident professor and his library was so massive. And I guess after he died, they broke up the library, sent it to all these different places. We don't even know all that he was reading. I mean, I'm looking at some of some of these old texts and books now going, yeah, he was into some deep stuff. Um, and so like I would go into a bookstore there and I'm finding like copies of like Tolkien and Lewis from like the fifties, you know, like some really early stuff. Um, so I picked up some copies there, but I'm walking down the street and I look and, you know, I'm kind of window shopping and there's an antique map store. I'm like, what kind of like, what do you mean antique maps? I got to check this out. Right. You walk in, there's like something straight out of the movies and, you know, just like just dust and stacks of papers and things framed on the walls. And I'm looking around in there and the store owner, he comes up to me. He's like, can I help you with something specifically? Is there something you're looking for? And I said, would you happen to have anything uh, to do with sea serpents? You know, any old maps with sea serpents on them? And he looked at me and he said, I have just the thing I think you're looking for. And he led me through the back curtain. I'm like, yes, I made it through the back curtain. And you go into the back room and it was even more spectacular than the front room. I mean, it's just like stacks of paper and dirt everywhere, dust. I mean, this is like this old, old um, uh, place. And he's like looking through all the stacks and stuff. And he pull, he's like, oh, there it is. And he pulls it out. And it was, it was a sheet from uh, a science catalog, uh, natural history from... Man, I, I feel so silly saying this now because I can't recall the day. I think it was the 1600s. And it was an original sheet that was printed in the 1600s. And it was cataloging all the animals all over the world. And so they have like the, the eel fish and these different uh, fish on this page. And right there is, boom, the sea serpent. Now, these are none of these are myth mythological creatures. These were all creatures that were seen and observed. And he drew right there the sea serpent. I was trying to find online a page that resembled that, that is actual, the, uh, the actual uh, same picture, same print of the sea serpent that I have. And um, the page is pretty close, but a little bit different than this. It's a little bit different, but it's pretty close to this. So that's one of my pride and, and joys in my collection at home uh, to have a, a page from a science journal, an actual page from an actual book that was printed hundreds of years ago in which the sea serpent was still declared to be alive. So you can see this is chapter nine from the sea serpent. This is a, a very large, I mean, this is like 70 some pages. I don't know why I'm rambling at this point. I need to get through this. It's uh, like 11 o'clock Eastern time on a Friday night. So thank you all for, for being here uh, live with me. On the dark bottom of the great salt lake in prison lay the giant snake with not his soul in sleep to break, poets of the north translated. Oh, it was called uh, Olin Schlager, translated by Longfellow. That Frank writer, Montaigne says, and just so you guys know the, the format of this, I'm going to try to read through this as much as possible. I don't think commentary is really needed. This is just going to be more of a reading of a chapter of a book that I find fascinating, which I've been wanting to do for several years now. That Frank writer, Mon Montaigne, uh, says, Yet on the other side, it is a Scottish presumption to disdain and condemn that for false, which unto us seemeth to bear no show of likelihood of, or truth, which is an um, ordinary fault in those who persuade themselves to be of more 
uh, this is like old English here, to be more sufficiency or su sufficient than the vulgar sort. But reason hath taught me that so resolutely to condemn a thing for false and impossible is to assume unto himself the advantage to have the bounds and limits of God's will and of the power of our common mother nature tied to his sleeve, and that there is no greater folly in the world than to reduce them to the measure of our uh, capacity and bounds of our sufficient, uh, sufficiency. If we term those things monsters or miracles to which our reason cannot attain, how many such do daily present themselves unto our sight? Let us consider through what clouds and how blindfold we are led to the knowledge of most things that pass our hands. Verily we shall find it is rather custom than science that removeth the strangest of them from us, and that those things, those things were they newly presented unto us. We should doubtless deem them as much or more unlikely and incredible than any other. So his remarks seem to me to apply as aptly to the much vexed question of the existence or non-existence of the sea serpent, as though they had been specially written in reference to it. The sea serpent, at once the belief and the denied of scientific men, the accepted and ignored, according to their estimation of the evidence, now keep in mind he's writing in the late 1800s here, of reasoners, not scientific perhaps, but intelligent and educated, the valued basis for items to the journalist, and the uh, qu uh, quintain of, for every self-sufficient, I don't even know what this word is, guys, a, <laughs> a gobmouche to, to tilt against, appearing mysteriously at long intervals and in distant places, the sea serpent has as yet avoided capture and the honorable distinction of being cataloged and labeled in our museums. Yet I do believe this weird creature to be a real solid fact and not a fanciful hallucination. This, is, this assertion, however, has to be sustained under many difficulties. The dread of ridicule closes the mouths of many men who could speak upon the subject while their dependent position forces them to submit to this half-bantering, half-warning um, expostulations of their employers. When, for example, an unimaginative, an unimaginative ship owner breaks just over his unfortunate shipmaster's head and significantly hints his hope, as I know to have been the case, that on his next voyage he will see no more sea serpents, or, in other words, that the great monster belongs to the same genius as the snake seen in the boots of a Western dram drinker, we may be sure that an important barrier is put to any further communication on the subject from that source, at least. Or when, again, some knot of idle youngsters enliven the mon monotony of a long voyage by preparing a deliberate hoax for publication on their arrival, a certain amount of discredit necessarily attaches to the monster on the ultimate exposure of the jest. Now, he's bringing up a great point here because we've seen this time and time and time again with the supernatural world where there are hoaxers. And he's saying that in his day, there were hoaxers going around and for publication purposes, you know, they were making up that they were 
um, seeing these creatures. The same thing has happened in the modern day with you know Sasquatch and other things where it comes out later that they lied about it, they made it up. Often they lose their job, whatever, but they thought that they would get a good kick out of it, maybe a little publication, a little money on the side, whatever, whatever it was. Maybe they just wanted attention. And it in turn, it, it does more damage to discredit. And of course, they probably are only hoaxing it because they don't believe it to begin with. Men also occasionally deceive themselves and while honestly believing that they have seen his Oce uh, oceanic majesty produce a story which on analysis crumbles into atoms and crowns him with disgrace as an imposter. So he's saying that there are, even though he's saying, I believe that these are real, he admits that there are people out there who believe that they really, that they really believe what they're saying, that they think they saw something, but in the end they saw, uh, they saw nothing. Now, um, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and point out here that at the risk of confusing some of the potential viewers, uh, that it's interesting that this is a post-mud flood event. And uh, the sightings that he is talking about are all like within the last few hundred years. So we're talking probably like 1500s and beyond. Now, official history says that men were not seafarers all throughout history. They basically all kind of just coasted along the shorelines even the vikings when they were coming down from norway and sweden were just going to like you know northern european locations though you know now it's accepted you know the vikings did go to america um but this idea is is that uh, it wasn't until columbus and the spaniards that they were making this long haul across the ocean now interestingly enough is that that is a lot of the sightings that he's talking about i'm of the position to state that there was sea travel for thousands of years, certainly hundreds and hundreds of years before Columbus. They were going everywhere. They all knew it. And there are these different times in history when they scrub history. And then you go another two, 300 years, they scrub it again. Another couple hundred years, they scrub it again. So what we're left with at the end of it, at the receiving end is just very, very little. And so in this time and during the Enlightenment and the age of industry, when he's writing this, you know, they're having this idea that they're this mythological creature, but people are still seeing them. And I think there were very few at this time. And I think they're probably gone now. I, I don't think they, they might exist, but I don't think that they're there. And I think that probably the, um, it's the same thing with whale attacks. Once boats started getting engines, uh, we stopped seeing, you know, these attacks. So, all right. The hard logic of science in the hand of one of our masterminds has also been arrayed against him, but fortunately weighs rather against special avatars than against his existence absolutely. Finally, the narratives of different observer, observers disagree so much in detail that we have a difficulty in reconciling them, except upon the uh, supposition that they relate to several distinct creatures, a supposition which I shall hope to show is not improbable as well as that the term sea serpent is an unwarranted specific differentiation of that of sea monster, the various creatures collectively so designated being neither serpents nor indeed always mutually related. In commencing my record, I must bear in mind uh, Mrs. Glass's uh, proverb, uh, proverb oh, man, I'm getting late, guys. Pro <laughs> Proverbially excellent advice and admit that it is simply a history of the various appearances of a creature or creatures 
too fugitive to admit of specific examination, and that until by some remarkable stroke of fortune, specimens are secured, their zoological status must remain an unsolved, although closely guessed at problem. I, uh, Miss Pamela is watching right now, and I hope she appreciated the remark that these creatures are fugitives, because she and I were talking, because uh, I've been researching a lot of the Leviathan, and of course, I believe the Leviathan is a spiritual entity, not a physical creature like, you know, like a zebra or a giraffe or something like that. It's, it's a, actually a spiritual entity. And uh, she was, we were looking at the language and stuff in scripture, particularly in Isaiah, and how it talks about it's a, a wandering fugitive, the Leviathan. It's really interesting. I have elsewhere stated my conviction that the serpent Midgard is only a corruption of accounts of the sea serpent handed down from times when a supernatural existence was attributed to it. And we have in the sages probably the earliest references to it, unless perhaps the serpents mentioned by Aristotle, which attacked and, and overset the galleys of the Libyan coast, may have been of this species. The coast of Norway, deeply indebted by fords, the channels of which for a certain breath have a depth equal to that of the sea outside, seldom less than 400 fathoms, and corresponding in some degree with the heights of the uh, cliffs which enclose them, abounding in all kinds of fish, and in the season with whales, which at one time used to number thousands in a shoal, appears until within the last 30 years to have been peculiarly the favorite haunt of the serpents. Paddle and screw are probably answerable for his not appearance on the surface lately. Hmm. So he's saying that, yeah, that even the ships that are coming in now are describing why he's not surfacing. The west coast of the Isle of Skye is another locality from which several reports of it have been received during this century. Less frequently, it has been observed upon the eastern American coastline, upon the seaboard of China, and in various portions of the broad ocean. It generally follows the track of whales, and in two instances, observers affirm that it has been seen in combat with them. So uh, in combat with whales. I have no doubt but that the literature of Norway contains frequent references to it of olden date. But the earliest notice of it in that country, which I have been able to procure, is one contained in a narrative of the Northeast Frosty Seas, declared by the Duke of Moscone, his ambassadors, to a learned gentleman of Italy named uh, Galicius Butrugarius as follows. So this is the account. The lake called Moss and the island of Hofusen in midst thereof is in the degree 45.30 and 61. In this lake appeareth a strange monster, strange monster, which is a serpent of huge bigness, and as to all other places of the world, blazing stars do pretend alteration. So doeth this to Norway, or so doth this to Norway. It was seen of late in the year of Christ, 1522, appearing far above the water, rowling like a great pillar, and was by conjecture far off esteemed to be of 50 cubits in length. Now, one of the, the common things with these sightings is that, so you have the ship, you have the mass of the ship and the crow's nest on top, that these serpents would raise themselves up in the water and their head is, you know, they're kind of like a snake, almost think of like a, like a cobra or something. And they're kind of looking down at the ship. 
uh, and they would talk about how that they would rise above the mass, right? I mean, that's just crazy to think about. Now, you know, according to today's ships, you know, that would be incredibly small, but uh, still. And then, uh, so Pato Piden, the Bishop of Bergen, who published his celebrated Natural History of Norway in 1755, and who had who had at one time discredited its, its existence, quote, tell that suspicion was removed by full and sufficient evidence from creditable and experienced fishermen and sailors in Norway, of which there are hundreds who can testify that they have annually seen them. So you guys get that? It's in 1755, the Bishop of Bergen is saying that there were hundreds of fishermen off Norway who are testifying that they didn't see them just once that they annually see them. States that the, that the North traders who came to Bergen every year with their merchandise thought a very strange question when they were seriously asked whether they were any such creatures, as ridiculous, in fact, as if the question had been put to them whether there be such fish or eel or cod. Um, like, you know, they're just like it, saying that it was such a reality for these Norwegians that they're just, they're like almost insulted. They're just laughing at the fact you would ask a question. It's like we're fishermen, dude. Like, you ask us if there's fish in the sea next. We see them all the time. Like, why do you guys think this is a myth? It's real. According to Ponto Piden, these creatures continually keep at the bottom of the sea, excepting in the months of July and August, which is interesting. That's going to be the warmest, which is their spawning time. And then they come to the surface in calm weather, but plunge into the water again so soon as the wind raises the least wave. I wonder if you can see them like, you know, so the, wa the water's calm, so you can see them kind of like gliding like a snake along. You know, we always imagine them going like this, but I wonder how many times they kind of glided like a snake. It was supposed by the Norway fishermen to have a great objection to castor, with which they provided themselves when going out to sea, shutting it up in a hole in the stern and throwing a little overboard when apprehensive of meeting the sea snake. The Faroe fishermen have the same idea with reference to the uh, the Vold whale, which was supposed to have a great aversion to castor, castor and to shavings of juniper wood. Olas Magnus, in his Histor uh, Septentrion, Septentrion, chapter 27, writing not from personal observation, but from the relations of others, speaks of it as being 200 feet in length, and 20 feet round, 20 feet around, that's low, having a mane two feet long, being covered with scales, having fiery eyes, disturbing ships, and raising itself up like a mast, and sometimes snapping some of the men from the deck. So it's coming down and taking dudes out on the deck. Uh, Aldro Vandus, quoting Olas Magnus, says that about Norway, there occasionally appears a serpent reaching to 100 or 200 feet in length, dangerous to ships in calm weather, as it sometimes snatches a man from the ship. It is said that merchant ships are involved by it and stunk. Olas Magnus also figures another serpent, which is said to inhabit the Baltic or Swedish Sea. It is from 30 to 40 feet in length and will not hurt anyone unless provoked. Well, that's nice to know. Some friendly ones out there. How do you provoke a sea serpent? 
And then, uh, so these are, you know, illustrations originally from his book right here. Uh, just, it's called Sea Serpent Attacking the Vessel from Olas Magnus. Bernsen, in his account of the fertility of Denmark and Norway, says that the sea snake, as well as the uh, Tivold whale, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that, often sinks both men and boats. And Pontopedon was informed by the North traders that the sea snake has frequently raised itself up and thrown itself across a boat and even across a vessel of some hundred tons burthen and by its weight sunk it to the bottom. So, you know, I talked about how they would go up above the mass, right? So now they're just like, boom, just smacking down, just taking out the whole boat. And that they would sometimes raise their frightful heads and snap a man, snap a man out of a boat. But this Pontopedon does not vouch for and indeed says that if anything, however light, be thrown at and touch them, they generally plunge into the water or take another course. Hans, afterwards Bishop uh, Egidi, or Eged, in his full and particular relation of my voyage to Greenland as a missionary in the year 1734, figures and describes a sea monster which showed itself on his passage. He says, on the 6th of January, 1734, when off the south coast of Greenland, a sea monster appeared to us whose head when raised was on a level with our maiden, with our main top. So there you go. Its snout was long and sharp and a blue water almost like a whale. It had large, broad paws. Its body was covered with scales. Its skin was rough and uneven. I don't know by the paws there, if he's talking about like arms, um, but, you know, wouldn't surprise me. Uh, its body was covered with scales. Its skin was rough and uneven. In other respects, it was as a serpent. And when it dived, its tail, which was raised in the air, appeared to be a whole ship's length from its body. In another work, The New Survey of Old Greenland, uh, Iged speaks of the same monster with the addition that the body was full as thick and as big in circumference as the ship that he sailed in. The drawing, which I reproduced, you have to wonder like <laughs> if they're if they're anything like a snake, you know, and like, you know, if you ever watch a snake eat something like, I mean, I don't know, like what if it like, it ate like a shark or a small whale or something like that. And then like its body gets like really big or something. The drawing, which I reproduce of uh, figure 68, uh, that's right here. We'll see that in a second. Appears to have been taken by another missionary, Mr. Bing, who stated that the creature's eyes seemed red and like burning fire. The paws mentioned by Igid were probably paddles like those of the uh, Lyasic uh, Saurians. Okay, so... Um, anyways, there's the drawing they made of it there. And it's got like a, it looks like the Dilophosaurus from Jurassic Park. It's got like a, like a crest, uh, almost like a, like a cobra. It looks like a cobra there with its, uh, skin, its flap coming down and there's breathing out water. Uh, that's not fire. That's water from its mouth. And that was seen in 1734 off the South coast of Greenland. Uh, Ponte Python considers this to be a different monster from the Norway sea serpent, of which he gives a figure furnished him by the Reverend Hans Strom, made from descriptions of two of his neighbors at Hiro, who had been eyewitnesses of its appearance. Lawrence de Ferry, a captain in the Norwegian Navy and commander in 
Bergen in Potsipiden's time actually wounded one of the Norwegian serpents and made two of his men who were with him in the boat at the time testify upon oath in court to the truth of the statement which he himself made as follows. The later end of August in the year 1746, as I was on a voyage, in my return from Trundheim, Trundheim in a very calm and hot day. So here we remember now, July and August, right? Hot days, and it's a calm day. So we're seeing some themes here with these testimonies. Having a mind to put in at mold, it happened that when we were arrived with my vessel within six English miles off the aforesaid mold, being at a place called Jewel Nafs or Naves, as I was reading in a book, I heard, I'd like to know what he was reading, but he was just reading a book. I heard a kind of murmuring voice from amongst the men at the oars, who were eight in number, and observed that the man at the helm kipped off from the land. Upon this, I inquired what was the matter and was informed that there was a sea snake before us. I then ordered the men at the helm to keep to the land again and to come up with this creature of which I had heard so many stories. Though the fellows were under some apprehensions, they were obliged to obey my orders. In the meantime, this sea snake passed by us and we were obliged to tack the vessel about in order to get nearer to it. As the snake swam faster than we could row, I took my gun that was ready charged and fired at it. On this, he immediately plunged under the water. We rowed to the place where it sank down. It's, <laughs> isn't that funny? It's like, you know, like deer in the woods, like you, you snap a twig and they're like, boom, they're gone. But, you know, you're driving down the road and they look at the headlights, you know, deer in front of headlights. It's like the snake could be like, he could be out there just hanging around all the stuff, but just like a gunshot and boom, he's gone, right? We rowed to the place where it sank down, which in the calm might be easily observed and lay upon our oars thinking it would come up again to the surface. However, it did not. When the snake plunged down, the water appeared thick and red. Perhaps some of the shot might, uh, some of the shot might wound it. The distance being very little, the head of the snake, which it held more than two feet above the surface of the water resembled that of a horse. It was of a grayish color and the mouth was quite black and very large. It had black eyes and a long white mane that hung down from the neck to the surface of the water. Besides the head and neck, we saw seven or eight folds of coils of the snake, which were very thick. And as far as we could guess, there was about a fathom distance between each fold. Bergen in 1751. So they saw, um, even though its neck, it only went, uh, its head went, he said two feet above the water, which isn't that high. Uh, but he saw seven or eight folds of coils of the snake. Wow. <clears throat> Pontel uh, Python remarks on the peculiarity of spouting water from the nostrils exhibited by the creature seen by Hans Egede and states that he had not known it spoken of in any other instance. I, I, that, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it just... <laughs> I had to spit out some water, you know, not a big deal. Okay, so we see here the Norwegian sea serpent or Norwegian uh, sea serpent, according to uh, Ponzo Python. So this is their, oh, so this is the coils they're actually talking about here. You can see this, the, you know, like I'm seeing one, two, three, four, five, six, there's seven pictured here. That's the coil. So coming up and now the water and then its head, yeah, just right above the water there. 
He also remarks that the Norway sea snakes differ from the Greenland ones with regard to the skin, which in the former is as smooth as glass and has not the least wrinkle, except about the neck, where there is a kind of mane, which looks like a parcel of seaweeds hanging down to the water. It's funny, you see like silly cartoons of sea serpents and they draw like the seaweed there, right? Summarizing the accounts which had reached him, I almost wonder if they do that for like camouflage, you know, like, you know, they could, if, you have, if you've ever been like scuba diving or snorkeling and you see an octopus, it's really creepy because you like look at it and you're like, is that a rock? And then you see the eyes, you're like, oh, it's an octopus, right? But it looks just like the rock. And you have to wonder about that with sea serpents, if they, you know, they're camouflaged down in the seaweed. Um, <clears throat> summarizing the accounts which had reached him, he estimates the length at about 100 fathoms or 600 English feet. He states that it lies on the surface of the water 600 feet. Is that is English feet different than American feet? <laughs> I don't think so. When it is very calm and many folds and that these are in line with the head. Some small parts of the back are to be seen above the surface of the water when it moves or bends which at a distance appeared like so many cask or hogsheads floating in a line with a considerable distance between each of them. And this is the quote here from the horse's mouth. The creature does not, like the eel or land snake, taper gradually to a point, but the body, which looks to be as big as two hogsheads, grows remarkably small at once just where the tail begins. The head in all the kinds has a high and broad forehead, but in some pointed snout, but, but in some a pointed snout, though in others that is flat like that of a cow or horse with large nostrils and several stiff hairs standing out on each side like whiskers. They add that the eyes of this creature are very large and of a blue color and look like a couple of bright pewter plates. The whole animal is of a dark brown color, but it is speckled and uh, variegated with light streaks or spots that shine like tortoise shells. It is of a darker hue about the eyes and mouth than elsewhere and appears in that part a good deal like those horses, which we call Morseheads. He mentions two places, one at Amund's Vagan in Nordfjord, Nordfjord, the other at the island of Carmen where carcasses of it had been left at high water. He supposes it to be uh, viviparous. In an account of the Laplanders at Finnmark by Nude Leems, with the notes of Gunnar, Bishop of Drothim, uh, this is Copenhagen, 1767, I find, quote, the sea of Finnmark also generates the snake or marine serpents, 40 paces long, equaling in the size of the head, the whale, and form the serpent. So a head as big of a whale. I mean, that's a pretty big head, right? This monster has a maned neck resembling a horse. So it's interesting. Some people just describe it as like seaweed looking, but then others call it like a mane, like a horse, right? And then they talk about the whiskers. A back of a gray color, the belly inclining to white. And then we continue on the uh, on the canicular days when the sea is calm. There's a familiar theme again. The marine serpent usually comes up, winding into various spirals, of which some are above, the others below the water. This would be the up and down coil, right? The seamen very much dread this monster. 
nor while he is coming up do they easily entrust themselves to the dangers of the deep. Can you imagine that? I mean, you're just minding your own business. You're at sea and you look out there and you see that thing coming up to you and you're like, oh man, what is this thing going to do? Right. It only attacks if it's like, you, you know, invoked or whatever, but it's, <laughs> it's like, we're just, just, just get out of here, you know, and it's following us. Mr. J. Ramus records a large sea snake, which was seen in 1687 by many people in Drams Fjorden. It was in very calm weather, again, calm weather. And so soon as the sun appeared and the wind blew a little, it shot away just like a coiled cable that is suddenly thrown out by the sailors. And they observed that it was some time in stretching out its many folds. Captain, afterwards Sir Arthur de Capel Brook, collected all accounts he could during his journey to the North Cape, respecting the sea serpent, which the following, with the following results. And he quotes, as I had determined on arriving at the coast to make every inquiry respecting the truth of the accounts which had reached England the previous preceding year of the sea serpent, having recently been seen off this part of Norway, I shall simply give the different reports I received during my voyage to the North Cape, leaving others to their own conclusions and without expressing, at least for the present, my opinion respecting them. The fishermen at... Uh, Pidgerstad said a serpent was seen two years ago in the Folden Ford, the length of which, as far as it was visible, was 60 feet. At, Ot at Ottersion, the postmaster, Captain Schilderup, what a fun name, Captain Schilderup, who had formerly been in the Norwegian Sea Service and seemed a quick, intelligent man, stated that the serpent had actually been off the island for a considerable length of time during the preceding summer in the narrow parts of the sound between this island and the continent. And the description he gave was as follows. Hold on, I need to drink a coffee before I read this. It made its appearance for the first time in the month of July, 1849. It's amazing how all these accounts, they all connect. Off Ottersund. Um, Previous to this, he had often heard of the existence of these creatures, but never before believed it. I hear the same thing with Sasquatch all the time. They say they they never believed any of the accounts. They thought it was all fake, but once you're standing in front of them, you will never forget it. During the whole of that month, the weather was excessively sultry and calm, and the serpent was seen every day nearly in the same part of the sound. It continued there while the warm weather lasted, lying motionless, and as if dozing in the sunbeams. The number of persons living on the island, he said, was about 30, the whole of whom, from motives of curiosity, went to look at it while it remained. This was confirmed to me by subsequent inquiries among the inhabitants who gave a similar account of it. The first time that he saw it was in a boat at the distance of 200 yards. The length of it he supposes to have been about 300 ells or 600 feet. That's massive. 600 feet? Is this is this English feet or some other feet? Of this, he could not speak accurately, but it was of considerable length and longer than it appeared as it lay in large coils above the water to the height of many feet. Its color was grayish. At the distance at which he was, he could not ascertain whether it was covered with scales, but when it moved, it made a loud crackling noise, which he distinctly heard. Its head was shaped like that of a serpent, but he could not tell whether it had teeth or not. He said it emitted a very strong odor and that the boatmen were afraid to approach near it. I mean, I would too. I mean, 
<laughs> I don't want to approach a little snake. I don't know about a big one. And looked on its coming as a bad sign as the fish left the coast, coast in consequence. Such were the particulars he related to me. The merchant at Krogan confirmed in every particular the account of Captain Shieldrup and that many of the people of Krogan had witnessed it. On the island of Liko, I obtained from the son of Peter Gregor, the merchant, a young man who employed himself in the fishery, still furthermore infor information respecting the sea serpent. It was in August of the preceding year, while fishing with others in the vague or vague fjord, that he saw it. At that time, they were on shore hauling in their nets, and it appeared about 60 yards distant from them, at which they were not a little alarmed and immediately retreated. What was seen of it above water, he said, appeared six times the length of their boat, of a gray color, and lying in coils a great height above the surface. Their fright prevented them from attending more accurately to other particulars. In fact, they all fairly took to their heels when they found the monster so near to them. At Austerhog, uh, Austerhog, I wish I could speak with a better uh, European accent. I'm sorry, guys. I got a California tongue here. I can't pronounce any of these places. I found the Bishop of the Nordlands. The worthy relate was a sensible and well-informed man between 50 and 60 years of age. To the test, So it's interesting. A lot of these bishops are giving testimony. And I, I think the reason being is that these bishops are being uh, sent to these different locations, right? They're you know being assigned. Uh, places and so they would naturally come back and tell stories strange things that the locals there are kind of just you know they all kind of know about and so the, the information is passing through these bishops to the testimony of others respecting the existence of the sea serpent i shall not shall now add that of the bishop himself who was an eyewitness to the appearance of two in the bay of shurisand or sorsand on the drothim fjord about eight Norway miles from Drotham. He was but a short distance from, uh, from them and saw them plainly. They were swimming in large folds, part of which were seen above the water, and the length of what appeared of the largest he judged to be about 100 feet. They were of darkish gray color, the heads hardly discernible from their being almost underwater, and they were visible for only a short time. Before that period, he, period, he had treated the accounts of them as fabulous, but it was now impossible, he said, to doubt their existence, as such numbers of respectable people since that time had likewise seen them on several occasions. He had never met with any person who had seen the Kraken and was inclined to think it a fable. Funny, I just explained that with Sasquatch. Like once you're face to face with them, you will never, you will never forget that moment or deny their existence again. I've spoken with enough enough uh, witnesses uh, who said that. During the time that I remained in uh, Hundholm, a curious circumstance occurred. One day, when at dinner at Mr. Blackhall's house, and thinking little of the sea serpent, concerning which I had heard nothing for some time, a young man, the master of a small fishing yacht, which had just come in from Drotham, joined our party. In the course of conversation, he mentioned that a few hours before, while close to Hundholm, and previous to his entering the harbor, two sea snakes passed immediately under his yacht. When he saw them, he was on the deck, and seizing a handspike, he struck at them as they came up close to the vessel on the other side, upon which they disappeared. 
Their length was very great and their color grayish, but for the very short time they were visible, he could not notice any further particulars. He had no doubt of their being snakes, as he called them, and the, circumfer uh, the, the circumstance was related entirely of his own accord. Captain Brooks sums up the reports he received with the following general observations. And he quotes, taking upon the whole a fair view of the different accounts related in the foregoing pages respecting the sea serpent, no reasonable person can doubt the fact that some marine animal of extraordinary dimensions and in all probability of the serpent tribe having been repeatedly seen by various persons along the Norway and Finnmark coast. These accounts, for the most part, have been given verbally from the mouths of the fishermen, a honest and artless class of men who, having no motive for misrepresentation, cannot be suspected of a wish to deceive. Could this idea, however, be entertained, the, uh, the circumstance of their assertions having been so fully confirmed by others in more distant parts would be sufficient to free them from any imputation of this kind. The simplest facts are these. In traversing a space of full 700 miles of coast, extending to the most northern point, accounts have been received from numerous persons respecting the appearance of an animal called by them a sea serpent. This of itself would induce some de degree of credit to be given to it, but within these several relations as to the general appearance of the animal, its dimensions, the state of weather when it was seen, and other particulars are so fully confirmed, one by the other, at such considerable intervening distances, every reasonable man will feel satisfied of the truth of the main fact. Many of the informants, besides, were of superior rank in education, and the opinions of such men as the Amtmand um, or the governor of Finnmark, Mr. Steen, the clergyman of Carcel, Prosten, Dean, Deanbol of Vadzo, and the Bishop of Nordland and Finnmark, who was even an eyewitness, ought not to be disregarded. The Bishop, the bishop of Nordland has seen two of them about eight miles from Drothim, the largest being apparently 100 feet, and in 1822, one as bulky as an ox, and a quarter of a mile in length appeared off the island of Soro near Finnmark and was seen by many people. Now, this, this is really fascinating to me because really you can go back to, you know, Greek Roman times, uh, even before, uh, you can see depictions of sea serpents all over in their mosaics. In, during the Crusades, there was a famous coin that was distributed that showed a sea serpent next to a dolphin. And so the thing is, is that how in the world are we in the 17, 1800s and people still think this is a myth and yet they're all seeing it? Well, this goes back to what I'm saying that I think we go every couple hundred years, we just get history scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. And so we're always taught that things from two, 300 years ago was a myth, right? Not having the zoologist at hand, I now quote a resume of short notices extracted from it contained in the Illustrated London News for October 28th. 1848 as follows our attention has been drawn to the zoologist for the past year oh i'm blocking that for you guys our attention has been drawn to the zoologist for the past year wherein are several communications tending to the the authenticate the uh to authenticate the existence of the great sea serpent thus in the number for february 1847 we find paragraphs quoted from the norse newspapers stating that in the neighborhood of Kristiansund and Mold in the province of Romsdal in Norway, several highly respectable and credible witnesses have attested the seeing of the serpent. In general, they state that it has been seen in the large, larger Norwegian fords 
seldom in the open sea. In the large bites of the sea at Christian Sun, it has been seen every year, though only in the warmest season, in the dog days, and then only in perfectly calm weather and unruffled water. Its length is stated about 44 feet and twice as thick as a common snake in proportion to the length. That's kind of interesting. So if you can imagine a snake, if you take the same length of a snake, double its width. The front of the head was rather pointed, the eyes sharp, and from the back of the head commenced the mane like that of a horse. And they're all relating, all these sorts. The color of the animal was a blackish brown, though usually they're silverish or gray, right? It swam swiftly with serpentine movements like a leech. One of the witnesses describes the body to be two feet in diameter, the head as long as a brandy anchor or 10-gallon cask, and about the same thickness, not pointed but round. It had no scales, but the body quite smooth. The witness acknowledged Pontopedon's representation to be like the serpent he saw. The writer, of the, the writer of this article received letters from Mr. Soren Knudson, stating that a sea serpent had been seen in the neighborhood of Christiansund by several people, and from Dr. Hoffman, a respectable surgeon in mold, stating that lying on a considerable ford to the south of Christiansund, Rector Hammer, Mr. Crabbed, or Mr. Crabbed, curate, and several persons very clearly saw while on a journey a sea serpent of very considerable size. Four other persons saw a similar animal, July 28, 1845. There's July again. The next communication dated Sun's Parsonage, August 31st, 1846, records the appearance of a supposed sea serpent on the 8th. So I guess this would be the 8th of August. In the course between the islands of Sardar Lear and Toss. Early on this day, just as the streamer, uh, a streamer, uh, Bjorgen, passed through Rogni Ford, Towering a vessel to Bergen. Man, this makes me want to go to Norway. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Daniel Solomonson, a cotter, saw a sea monster swimming from the ford in a westerly direction towards his dwelling. Uh, how can I pronounce this? At Granavigskatset. That's an awesome, awesome name. Granavigskatset, whatever in the northern part of the parish of Sund. The head appeared like a ferrying boat about 20 feet long, keel uppermost, and from behind it raised itself toward a forward and three, and sometimes four and five undulations, each apparently about 12 feet long. So I think they're saying that these coils coming over, there's four or five of them at a time, and they're, each one of them are about 12 feet long as it goes up and down. On the same morning, a lad out fishing in the ford saw a serpent, which he describes to have been 60 feet long. For further information on the Norwegian sea serpent, I am indebted to the excellent chapter devoted to the question generally contained in Mr. Gosset's Romance of Natural History, first series from which I transfer without abbreviation a statement made by the Reverend Dinbull, uh, Archdeacon of Mold. And he says, on the 20th of July, 1845, there it is again, July, J.C. Lund, bookseller and printer, uh, and uh, G. Crow, merchant, Christian Flaying, Lund's apprentice, and John Eagleson, laborer, were out on Romsdell Ford fishing. The sea was, after a warm sunshine day, quite calm. 
about seven o'clock in the afternoon, a little distance from shore near the ballast place and mold um, hove, they saw a large marine animal which slowly moved itself forward as it appeared to them with the help of two fins on the fore part of the body nearest the head, which they judged from the boiling of the water on both sides of it. The visible part of the body appeared to be between 40 and 50 feet in length and moved in undulations like a snake. The body was round and of a dark color and seemed to be several L's in thickness. As they discerned a waving motion in the water behind the animal, they concluded that part of the body was concealed under water, that it was one connected animal they, uh, let me read that again, it's getting late, that it was one connected animal they saw plainly from its movement. Okay, so what they're saying is that it, it you know, it, it was kind of going in and out of the water and they could tell by the movement it was all in uniform with each other. When the animal was about 100 yards from the boat, they noticed, tall, so it's coming up to the boat, it looks like, they noticed tolerably correctly its forepart, which ended in a sharp snout. Its colossal head raised itself above the water in the form of a semicircle. So it's like kind of curled around as it's coming up. The lower part was not visible. The color of the head was dark brown and the skin smooth. They did not notice the eyes or any mane or bristles on the throat. When the serpent came about a musket shot near, Lund fired at it and was searching the shot, hit it in the head. After the shot, he died but came up immediately. He ra raised his head like a snake preparing to dart on its prey. Wow. After he had turned and got his body in a straight line, which he appeared to do with great difficulty, he darted like an arrow against the boat. They reached the shore and the animal, perceiving it had come into shallow water, dived immediately and disappeared in the deep. Mr. Goss further quotes a statement made by an Englishman writing under the signature of um, um, Onesis in the Times of November 4th, 1848, to the effect that, and here's his quote, a parish priest residing on Romsdale Ford, about two days' journey south of Drontheim, an intelligent person whose veracity I have no I have no reason to doubt, gave me a circumstantial account of one which he had himself seen. It rose within 30 yards of the boat in which he was and swam parallel with it for a considerable time. Its head he described as equaling a small cask in size and its mouth, which it repeatedly opened and shut was furnished with formidable teeth. Its neck was smaller, but its body, which he supposed that he saw about half on the surface of the water, was not less in girth than those of a moderate-sized horse. Another gentleman in whose house I stayed had also seen one and gave a similar account of it. It also came near his boat upon the ford when it was fired at, upon which it turned and pursued them to the shore, which was luckily near when it disappeared. I think that's the, the same account we just read. They expressed great surprise at the general disbelief attached to the existence of these animals among naturalists and assured me that there was scarcely a sailor accustomed to those inland lakes who had not seen them at one time or other. The Reverend Alfred C. Smith, a naturalist who visited Norway in 1850. Summarize, man, I want to go to Norway in the 1850s. <laughs> Going on a fishing expedition. Uh, summarizes the results of his investigation in the words, and I cannot withhold my belief in the existence of some huge inhabitant of those northern seas, when, to my mind, the fact of his existence has been so clearly proved by numerous eyewitnesses, many of whom were too, too intelligent to be deceived and too honest to be doubted.
Passing from these numerous narratives, which are distinguished for a remarkable agreement in the main characteristics described, I will proceed to, uh, to some of those whose scene lies on our own coast. In 1809, Mr. McLean, the parish minister of Egg, communicated to Dr. Neal, the secretary of the Wernerian Society, the following statement. I saw the animal of which you inquire in June 1808. There's the month again. Summertime's time to go out and see them. On the coast of, of Col, rowing along the coast, I observed at about the distance of half a mile an object to windward, which gradually uh, excited astonishment. At first view, it appeared like a small rock. But knowing that there was no rock in that situation, I fixed my eyes closely upon it. Then I saw it elevated considerably above the level of the sea, and after a slow movement, distinctly perceived one of its eyes. Alarmed at the unusual appearance and magnitude of the animal, I steered so as to be at no great distance from the shore. When nearly in a line between it and the shore, the monster directing its head, which still continued above water uh, towards us, plunged violently underwater, certain that he was in chase of us. We plied hard to get ashore. That has to be a horrific moment to realize that, yeah, that's not a rock. It sees you and it's coming after you. Just as we leapt out on a rock and had taken a station as high as we conveniently could, we saw it coming rapidly underwater towards the stern of our boat. When within a few yards of it, finding the water shallow, it raised its monstrous head above water and by a winding course got with apparent difficulty clear of the creek where our boat lay and where the monster seemed in danger of being embayed. It continued to move off with its head above water and with the wind for about half a mile before we lost sight of it. Its head was somewhat broad and a form somewhat oval, its neck somewhat smaller, its shoulders, if I can so term them, considerably broader, and thence it uh, tapered towards the tail which last it kept pretty low in the water so that a view of it could be taken so distinctly as I wished. It had no fins that I could perceive and seemed to me to move progressively by undulation up and down. Its length, I believe, to be between 70 and 80 feet. When nearest to me, it did not raise its head wholly above water so that the neck being underwater, I could perceive no shining uh, filaments thereon if it had any. Its progressive motion underwater I took to be very rapid. About the time I saw it, it was seen near the Isle of Cana. The crews of 13 fishing boats, I am told, were so much terrified at its appearance that they in a body fled from, from it to the nearest creek for safety. On the passage from Run to Cana, the crew of one boat saw it coming towards them with the wind and its head high above the water. One of the crew pronounced the head as large as a little boat and its eyes as large as a plate. The men were much terrified, but the monster offered them no molestation. I next extract from the pages of the Iverness Courier some very pertinent remarks upon a description of the sea monster seen by the Reverend Missers McRae and Twopenny, contained in the Zoologist, and I add the article there referred to. I had the advantage of hearing from a gentleman related to Mr. McRae that he could substantiate his statement, having himself about the same time and in that locality observed the same appearance, though at a greater distance off. The following is the article in the Everness Courier. 
We are glad to see that the two gentlemen who favored us last autumn with an account of what they believe to be a strange animal seen off the West Coast, uh, Inverness Shire, have published in Zoologist, a monthly journal of natural history, a careful description of the creature which they saw and which seems to resemble the engravings of what is called the Norwegian sea serpent. We subjoined the magazine article entire. There is such a dread of ridicule and appearing publicly in company with this mysterious and disreputable monster that we must commend the boldness of the two clergymen in putting their names to the narrative, especially as we observe that other observers have not been so courageous and they have been obliged to give some of their information anonymously. I, <laughs> I wonder if it's like I hear that, you know, if there's there's only two things that are going to ground a pilot. One, seeing the earth is flat, and two, seeing a gremlin on the wing. So I wonder if it was similar to that with like uh, some of these big like naval pilots back, uh, I mean, uh, ship captains back then, like you just kind of, you talk about it in the back room while smoking the pipes or the cigars. You don't report this to the media if you want to keep your job. The huge serpent, if serpent it may be called, invariably appears in still warm weather and in no other. There are certain Norwegian fords and narrow siege which it frequents, and it is scarcely ever seen in the open sea. In the present case, the limit in which the animal has been seen on our coast is uh, Loch Duich or Duch, Loch Duich, to the north and the Sand and Mole to the south, only about a fifth of the space between Cape Wrath and the Mole of Kintyre. Cape Wrath. That sounds like a nice vacation spot, but Mole of Kintyre sounds nice. And it is in that part it should be most looked for. We beg to draw the attention of our readers on the West Coast to the fact, now established on indubitable evidence, of the supposed animal having been seen there last year and to the possibility of its appearing again in similar weather this year. If it chances to turn up once more, some full and accurate account of the phenomenon would certainly be most desirable. And then the following is the article in Zoologist. Appearance of an animal believed to be that which is called the Norwegian sea serpent on the western coast of Scotland in August 1872 by the Reverend John McRae, minister of Glenelg, uh, Ivernesshire, and the Reverend David Tupiny, vicar of Stockbury, Kent. Imagine having to be this minister who uh, uh, went and told his congregation about this. On the 20th of August 1872, we started from Glenelg in a small cutter, the Lida. For an excursion to Lockhorn, our party consisted, besides ourselves, of two ladies, F and K, I guess they wouldn't give their names, just F and K, a gentleman, GB, and a Highland lad, <laughs> a, a Scot from the Highlands. Our course lay down the Sound of Sleet, which on that side divides the Isle of Skye from the mainland, the average breadth of the channel in that part being two miles. It was calm and sunshiny. I don't know if I've ever heard someone described as sunshiny before. Not a breath of air. I, I take that to mean the wind. And the sea perfectly smooth. As we were getting the cutter along with oars, we perceived a dark mass about 200 yards astern of us to the north. While we were looking at it with our glasses, we had three on board. Uh, three spy glasses, I guess. Another similar black lump rose to the left of the first, leaving an interval between. Then another, and another followed all in regular order. 
it, it's almost like it was resting there and then they're just watching as it's beginning to move we did not doubt it's being one living creature it moved slowly across her wake and disappeared presently the first mass which was evidently the head reappeared and was followed by the rising of the other black lumps as before sometimes three appeared sometimes four five or six and then sank again when they rose the head appeared first if it had been down and the lumps rose after it in regular order beginning always with that next the head and rising gently but when they sank they sank all together rather than abruptly sometimes leaving the head visible it gave the impression of a creature crooking up its back to sun itself there was no appearance of undulation when the lumps sank other lumps did not rise in the intervals between them the greater number we counted was seven making eight with head as shown in sketch number one uh well maybe we'll get to that sketch two engravings are given the part were the parts were separated from each other by intervals of about their own length the head being rather small and flatter than the rest and the nose being very slightly visible above the water but we did not see the head raised above the surface either this or the next day nor could we see the eye we had no means of measuring the length with any accuracy but taking the distance from the center of one lump to the center of the next to be six feet and it could scarcely be less the whole length of the portion visible including the interval submerged would be 45 feet presently as we were watching the creature it began to approach us rapidly causing a great agitation in the sea that that's always so creepy and like tons of these accounts you know they're just out there sunbathing minding their own business the sailors are minding their own business they see each other and uh you have to almost wonder is it trying to hunt them or is it just like curiosity right um, i had the same experience with a shark out in the ocean it was kind of following me around out of curiosity when i was uh out there underwater um i have to wonder if it's the same thing nearly the whole of the body if not all of it had now disappeared and the head advanced at a great rate in the midst of a shower of fine spray which was evidently raised in some way by the quick movement of the animal it not, did not appear how and not by spouting f this was one of the the ladies just went by the initial f was alarmed and retreated to the cabin crying out that the creature was coming down upon us when within about a hundred yards of us it sank and moved away in the direction of, of psych just under the surface of the water for we could trace its course by the waves it raised on the still sea to the distance of a mile or more after this it continued at intervals to show itself catering about at a distance as long as we were in that part of the sound the head and a small part only of the body being visible on the surface but we did not again on that day see it so near nor so well as the first at one time, F and K, the two ladies, and GB, the gentleman, saw a fin sticking up at a little distance back upon uh, back from the head. But neither of us were then observing. On our return the next day, we were again becalmed on the north side of the opening of Lockhorn, where it is about three miles wide, the day warm and sunshiny as before. As we were dragging slowly along in the afternoon, the creature again appeared over towards the south side at a greater distance than we saw it the first day. It now showed itself in three or four rather long lines, as in the sketch number two. Hopefully we'll get to these sketches. And looked considerably longer than it did the day before as nearly as we could compute. It looked at least 60 feet in length. Soon it began careering about, showing but a small part of itself as on the day before and appeared to be going up lockworm later in the afternoon 
when we were still becalmed in the mouth of Lockhorn, and by using the oars had nearly reached the island of Sandeg, it came rushing past us about 150 yards to the south on its return from Lockhorn. It went with great ra uh, rapidity, its black head only being visible through the clear sea, followed by a long trail of agitated water. As it shot along, the noise of its rush through the water could be distinctly heard on board. There were no organs of motion to be seen, nor was there any shower of spray as on the day before, but merely such a commotion in the sea as, it, as its quick passage might be expected to make. Its progress was equally in, and smooth, like that of a log towed rapidly. For the rest of the day, as we worked our way home northwards through the sound of sleet, it was occasionally within sight of us until nightfall, rushing about at a distance as before and showing only its head. Man, this thing is stalking them all day. This is like this is like Jaws or something. And a small part of its body on the surface. It seemed on each day to keep about us. And as we were always then rowing, we were inclined to think it perhaps might be attracted by the measured sound of the oars. Its only exit in this direction to the north was by the narrow strait of uh, Kylerhia, dividing Skyre from the mainland, and only a third of a mile wide, and we left our boat, wondering whether this strange creature had gone that way or turned back again to the south. We have only to add to this narrative of what we saw ourselves, the following instances of its being seen by other people, of the correctness of which we have no doubt. The ferryman on each side of Killer Kia saw it pass rapidly through on the evening of the 21st and heard the rush of the water. They were surprised and thought it might be a shoal of porpoises, but could not comprehend their going so quickly. Finally, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Finlay McRae of Bundlock in the parish of Kintail was within the mouth of Lockhorn on the 21st with other men in his boat and saw the creature at about the distance of 150 yards. Two, day, two days after we saw it, Alexander Macmillan, boat builder at Dorney, was fishing in a boat in the entrance of Loch Duick, halfway between Drudag and Castle Donan, when he saw the animal near enough to hear the noise and see the ripple it made in rushing along the sea. He says that what seemed its, uh, what seemed its head was followed by four or more lumps, or half rounds, as he calls them, and that they sometimes rose and sometimes sank together. He estimated its length and not less than between 60 and 80 feet. He saw it also on two subsequent days in Loch Duick, or Loch uh, Duch, maybe. On all these occasions, his brother, Farquhar, was with him in the boat, and they were both much alarmed and pulled to the shore in great haste. A lady at Dewsdale in Skye, a place overlooking the part of the sound which is opposite the opening of Lockhorn, said that she was looking out with a glass when she saw a strange object on the sea which appeared like eight seals in a row. This was just about the time that we saw it. We were also informed that about the same time it was seen from the island of Egg between Egg and the mainland, about 20 miles to the southwest of the opening of Lockhorn. We have not permission to mention the names of these last, of these two last instances, John McRae and David Twopenny. P.S. The writers of the above account scarcely expect the public to believe in the existence of the creature which they saw. Rather than that, they look for the disbelief and ridicule to which the subject always gives rise, partly on account of the animal having been pronounced to be a snake, without any sufficient evidence, 
but principally because of the exaggerations and fables with which the whole subject is beset. Nevertheless, they consider themselves bound to leave a record of what they saw in order that naturalists may receive it as a piece of evidence or not according to what they think it is worth. The animal will very likely turn up on those coasts again, and it will be always in that dead season, so convenient to editors of newspapers, for it is never seen but in the still warm days of summer or early autumn. There is a considerable, it seems to me like that's the time to go out and hang in boats, but I, there's a considerable, you know, if you, I just wanted to lounge around, but maybe not a lot of vacationers back then. There is a considerably probability that it has visited the same coast before. In the summer of 1871, some large creature was seen for some time rushing about in Lochduich, but it did not show itself sufficiently for anyone to ascertain what it was. Also, some years back, a well-known gentleman off the, of the West Coast, now living, was crossing the Sound of Mole from Mole to the mainland on a very calm afternoon when, as he writes, our attention was attracted to a monster which had come to the surface not more than 50 yards from our boat. It rose without causing the slightest disturbance of the sea or making the slightest noise and floated for some time on the surface, but without exhibiting its head or tail, showing only the ridge of the back, which was not that of a whale or any other sea animal that I have ever seen. The back appeared sharp and ridge-like and in color very dark, indeed black, or almost so. It rested quietly for a few minutes and then dropped quietly down into the deep without causing the slightest agitation. I should say that about 40 feet of it, certainly not less, appeared on the surface. It should be noted, uh, should be noticed that the inhabitants of the western coasts are quite familiar with the appearance of whales, seals, and porpoises, and when they see them, they recognize them at once. Whether the creature which uh, pursued Mr. McLean's boat off the island of Cole in 1808, and of which there is an account in the transactions of the West uh, Wernerian Society, was one of these Norwegian animals, it is not easy to say. Survivors who knew Mr. McLean say that he could quite be replied upon for, or could, that he could quite be relied upon for truths. I love that statement there where it says that, you know, that these people who live there, these fishermen who live in the ocean, they see whales, they see porpoises, they see seals all the time, they know what they look like. And then all these other people are probably, you know, mocking them saying, oh, that's probably what they were. It's like, dude, have you seen whales? Because we see them all the time. Like this was not a whale. Like we 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 know the difference. It's kind of like um, <laughs> when people, you know, going back on Sasquatch, people are like, oh, that was like a like a sickly coyote or like a you know a bear or something. It's like no 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 no. Like like you can when you're face to face with it, you know the difference. The public are not likely to believe in the creature till it is caught, and that does not seem likely to happen just yet. For a variety of reasons one reason being that it has from all the accounts given of it the power of moving very rapidly on the 20th while we were becalmed in the mouth of lockhorn a steam launch slowly passed us and as we watched it we reckoned its rate at five or six miles an hour when the animal rushed past us on the next day at about the same distance and when we were again becalmed nearly in the same place we agreed that it went twice as fast as the steamer and we thought that its rate could not be less than 10 or 12 miles an hour it might be shot, but would probably sink. There are three accounts of its being shot at in Norway. In one instance, it sank, and in the other two, it pursued the boats, which were near the shore, but disappeared when it found itself getting into shallow water. So remember that. Uh, we went over those accounts. If you're going to shoot 
at a C serpent if you ever do C1. Just know that it's going to charge after you after that. So make sure you get it with the first shot. It should be mentioned that when we saw this creature and made our sketches of it, we had never seen either Pontopedon's natural history or his Prince of the Norwegian Sea Serpent, which has a most striking resemblance to the first of our own sketches. Considering the great body of reasonable Norwegian evidence extending through a number of years, which remains after setting aside fables and exaggerations, it seems surprising that no naturalist of that country has ever applied himself to make out something about the animal. In the meantime, as the public will most probably uh, be, dubi uh, be dubious about quickly giving credit to our account, the following explanations are open to them, all of which have been proposed to me, uh, porpoises, lumps of seaweed, empty herring barrels, bladders, logs of wood, waves of the sea, and inflated pigskins. But as all these theories present to our mind greater difficulties than the existence of the animal itself, we feel obliged to decline them. The editors of the zoologist adds, I have long since expressed my firm conviction that there exists a large marine animal unknown to us naturalists. I maintain this belief as firmly as ever. I totally reject the evidence of published representations, but I do not allow these Im imaginary figures to interfere with a firm conviction. Here again, we have the same general resemblances observed under the same conditions of weather as in the case of the Norwegian serpent. As to the pursuit, which may either have been urged from motives of curiosity or of anger, I'm guessing anger, I mean, if, you know, you get shot, right? It is curious to find, a, if it's going down, it wants to take you down with it. Just remember that. It is curious to find a remarkable account of a similar incident in uh, Kotzebue's Voyages, where it is stated that Mr. Krukoff, while in a boat at Bering's Island, was pursued by an animal like a red serpent, and immensely long, with a head like that of a sea lion, but the eyes disproportionately large. It was fortunate, observed Mr. Uh, M. Krukoff, we were so near land or the monster would have swallowed us. He raised his head far above the surface and the sea lions were so terrified that some rushed into the water and others concealed themselves on the shore. I can imagine that. I can see the sea serpent would be like, you know, uh, sea lions look tasty to them. The last notice of its appearance in British waters is, like, I mean, they're like sea lions. They're afraid of the polar bears, right? Like the bears and stuff, but man. The last notice of its appearance in British waters is extracted from nature as follows. Believing it to be desirable that every well-authenticated observation indicating the existence of large sea serpents should be permanently registered, I send you the following particulars. About 3 p.m. on Sunday, September 3rd, 1882, so still, still summer just after August, but kind of waning into the, the, the autumn as they talk about. A party of gentlemen and ladies were standing at the northern extremity of uh, Landudno uh, Land Pier. If uh, my friends from the UK know where that is. Looking towards the open sea when an unusual object was observed in the water near to the little Orme's head. Or little Orm's head. Traveling rapidly westwards towards the great Orm. It appeared to be just outside the mouth of the bay and would therefore be about a mile distant from the observers. It was watched for about two minutes, and in, the, in, the, in that interval, it traversed about half the width of the bay and then suddenly disappeared. 
The bay is two miles wide, and therefore the object, whatever it was, must have traveled at the rate of 30 miles an hour. This is surprised me. I mean, snakes go fast, right? So if you have something that big, I could imagine it going 30 miles an hour. It is esteemed to have been fully as long as a large steamer, say 200 feet. That's a massive one. It's the biggest we've seen so far. The rapidity of its motion was particularly remarked as being greater than any of any ordinary vessel. The color appeared to be black and the motion either corkscrew-like or snake-like with vertical undulations. Three of the observers have since made sketches from memory quite independently of the impression left on their minds. And on comparing these sketches, which slightly varied, they have agreed to sanction the accompanying outline as representing as nearly as possible the object which they saw. The party consisted of W. Barfoot, J.P. of Leicester, F.J. Marlowe, solicitor of Manchester, Mrs. Marlowe, and several others. They discard the theories of birds or porpoises as not accounting for this particular phenomenon. Phenomenon, F.T. Motts, Burstall Hill, Leicester, January 16, 1883. It must also be mentioned that Dr. Hibbert states that the sea serpent has been seen in the Sheetland Seas, and instances one seen uh, in, and instances one seen off the Isle Stoneness, Valley Inland, and Dunvosness. The first that we hear of the appearance of the sea serpent in American waters is of one which appeared on the coast of Maine in, it's sad, I can't even pronounce American places, <laughs> Penobscot Bay. Penobscot Bay, I've never heard of that. Uh, I've been to Maine, I've never heard of that bay. At intervals during the 30 years preceding 1809, the Reverend Abraham Cummings, who reports this, saw it himself at a distance of about 80 yards and considered it to be 70 feet long. It was seen by the British in their expedition to Bagadus during the First American War and supposed to be 300 uh, feet long. The, the First American War, I guess that would be, what, the War of 1776? At first I read that and go, wait, wait, the First World War? Wait, that's, <laughs> it's getting late, people. The next record relates to one appearing in August 1817, which was, so I, yeah, I guess the second American war would be 1812, right? According to the British. The next record relates to one appearing in August, 1817, which was frequently seen in the harbor of Gloucester Cape Hour, about 30 miles from Boston. It is the subject of a report published by a committee appointed by the uh, Linnean Society of New England. Dr. Hamilton uh, summarizes the results as follows. The affidavits of a great many individuals of unblemished character are collected, which leaves no room to apprehend anything like deceit. They do not agree in every minute particular, but in regard to its great length and snake-like form, they are harmonious. Eleven de depositions were taken in which the length was variously estimated at from 50 to 100 feet. It was either seen lying perfectly still, extended upon the surface of the water, or prog progressing rapidly at the rate of a mile or two, or at the most three minutes. The mode of progression is generally spoken of as vertical undulation. The 10th deposition states on the 20th of June, 1815, my boy informed me, my boy, my boy informed me of an unusual appearance on the surface of the sea in the cove. When I viewed it through the glass, 
I was in a moment satisfied that it was some aquatic animal with the form, motions, and appearance of which I was not previously acquainted. It was about a quarter of a mile from it, the shore and was moving with great rapidity to the southward. It appeared about 30 feet in length. Presently, it turned about and then displayed a greater length, I suppose at length 100 feet. And they're all like the same size, right? 60, 70, 80, 100 feet. Except for that one we saw that was like 200 feet. You have to wonder about that one. I mean, I'm even questioning that one. It then came towards me very rapidly and lay entirely still on the surface of the water. His appearance then was like a string of buoys. I saw 30 or 40 of these protuberances or bunches, which were about the size of a barrel. The head appeared six or eight feet long and tapered off to the size of a horse's head. He then appeared about 120 feet long. The body appeared of a uniform size, the color deep brown. I could not discover it in any eye, mane, gills, or breathing holes. I did not see any fins or lips. One of the committee of the Linnean Society was himself an eyewitness, and Colonel Perkins of Boston published in 1848 a communication which was a copy of a letter he had written in 1820 detailing his personal experience and confirmation of the society's report as follows. In a few moments after my exclamation, I saw on the opposite side of the harbor, at about two miles from where I had first seen or thought I saw, the snake, the same object, moving with a rapid motion up the harbor on the western shore. As he approached us, it was easy to see that his motion was not that of the common snake, either on the land or in the water, but evidently the vertical movement of the caterpillar. That's really interesting, right? Caterpillar. That's the first we've heard of a, a sea serpent described like the motion of a caterpillar. Oh, yeah. As nearly as I could judge, there was visible at a time about 40 feet of his body. It was not to be sure a, conti a continuity of body as the form from head to tail, except as the appearance bunches appeared as he moved through the water was seen only at three or four feet asunder. It was very evident, however, that his length must be much greater than what appeared, as in his movement he left a considerable wake in his rear. I had a fine glass and was within from, I had a, a fine, I'm guessing he's not talking about a glass of wine, a fine glass of, uh, of a Chardonnay or anything like that, a uh, fine spy glass, and was within from one third to half a mile of him. The head was flat in the water, and the animal was, as far as I could distinguish, of a chocolate color. Well, this guy's descriptive. Caterpillar, chocolate. I was struck with an appearance. <laughs> I think he did have maybe a, a glass of something. I was struck with an appearance in front of the head like a single horn, about nine inches to a foot in length. That's kind of interesting. This one has a horn. And of the form of a uh, marlin spike. There were a great many people collected by this time, many of whom had before seen the same object and the same appearance. From the, uh, from the time I first saw him until he passed by the place where I stood and soon after disappeared was not more than 15 or 20 minutes. That's still a long time to observe it for like 15 or 20 minutes. Subsequent to the period of which, I mean, like these sightings we're seeing, like, you know, they're not like just something, you know, a split second, right? I mean, some of these are, good length of time. Subsequent to the period of which I have been speaking, the snake was seen by several of the crews of our coasting vessels, and in some instances within a few yards. Captain Tepan, a person well known to me, 
saw him with his head above the water two or three feet, at times moving with great rapidity and others slowly. I'll, I'll pause here really quickly. You know, that's something that gives credibility to this. For everyone listening or watching, you could think back on some time in your life when there was like a wild animal that kind of moved into your neighborhood around your house. I mean, I remember I grew up in Long Beach, California, and my wife and I lived there for years. That's the southernmost city in L.A. County. And we lived right, there was a, a river canal, uh, the Lost Coyotes River, uh, named after coyotes, funnily, or uh, funny enough, uh, there would be coyotes there. And I remember one time when a coyote moved in with little tiny coyotes. And it was there for, we would go see it on and off for like six months. And then it was gone, right? We never saw it again. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, you, you have these sea serpents, they kind of move into an area and they dominate it there when the weather is good and they're doing, you know, they're shedding their skin or whatever they're doing. And uh, so you would see, naturally see a lot of reports from different people. It wasn't just some something they saw in a split second and reported to a newspaper, right? Captain Tepan, a person well known to me, saw him with his head above the water, two or three feet, at times moving with great rapidity and others slowly. He also saw what ex explained the appearance, which I have described, of a horn on the front of the head. This was doubtless what was observed by Captain Tapon to be the tongue thrown in an upright position from the mouth and having the appearance which I have given to it. Okay, so that's interesting. So he, they're basically saying that the horn he saw was probably a tongue. Like, a, you know, you can, <laughs> you can also imagine a big dumb kind of snake with like the tongue, you know, hanging out, kind of like a dog or something. But, um, you know, usually a, like a snake, the tongue will come in and out. But uh, that's kind of interesting that maybe it was kind of like hanging out. And that's why not everyone saw it, just others saw it. One of the revenue cutters, while in the neighborhood of Cape Ann, had an excellent view of him at a few yards distance. He moved slowly, and upon the approach of the vessel, sank and was seen no more. Let's see. I'm trying to find a good breaking point. I'm fading, guys. I'm like a wilting flower here i need some water i only have coffee but i'll give it a few more minutes dr hamilton states that an animal i want to try to get like about halfway through this so maybe a few more pages dr hamilton states that an animal of similar appearance was again seen in august 1819 off nahant boston and remained in the neighborhood for some weeks 200 persons witnessed it. That's a lot of people, 200 persons. 13 folds were counted and the 13, so usually we see eight or nine, 13 folds were counted and the head, which was serpent shaped, was elevated two feet above the surface. Its eye was remarkably brilliant and glistening. The water was smooth and the water calm and serene. When it disappeared, its motion was um, undulatory, making curves perpendicular to the surface of the water and giving the appearance of a long moving string of corks. It appeared again off Nahant in July, 1833. So this is a almost 20 years difference uh, or 15 years difference, appeared 1819, and then it appeared the same place, 1833, both summertime, August and July. It was first seen on Saturday afternoon, passing between Egg Rock and the prom promontory, winding his way into Lynn Harbor. And again on Sunday morning, uh, heading for South Shores. It was seen by 40 or 50 ladies and gentlemen who insisted that they could not have been deceived. All right, so what is this an illustration of? Uh, 
Okay, this is uh, the sea serpent seen by the crew of HMS Dade Dallas in 1848. And this one, it's not doing like the the arches up and down. It seems to be just going in a straight line. And the that looks like a snake. I mean, that looks like a snakehead. The zoologist for May 1847 contains an account of a sea serpent seen in Mahone, Mahoney Bay, about 40 miles east of Halifax. I've been there to Halifax, uh, getting up into Canada. By five, why is it that like the cold? What is it about the cold weather? You know, we're not seeing any sightings in like you know South America or, or Cuba or you know, you know the, uh, the the Caribbean or wherever. We were surprised by the sight of an immense shoal of uh, grampuses, which appeared in an unusual state of excitement, and which in their gambles approached so close to our little craft that some of the party amused themselves by firing at them with rifles. At this time, we were jogging at about five miles an hour and must have been crossing Margaret's Bay. Yeah, I know where Margaret's Bay is. When suddenly at a distance of from 150 to 200 yards on our starboard bow, we saw the head and neck of some denizen of the deep, precisely like those of a common snake in the act of swimming, the head so far elevated and thrown forward by the curve of the neck as to enable us to see the water under and beyond it. The creature rapidly passed, leaving a regular wake from the commencement of which to the forepart, which was out of water, we judged in length to be about 80 feet, and this within rather than beyond the mark. It is most difficult to give correctly the dimensions of any object in the water. The head of the creature we set down at about six feet in length, and that portion of the neck which we saw the same, the extreme length, as before stated, at between 80 and 100 feet. The neck and thickness equaled the bowl of a moderate sized tree the head and neck of a dark brown or nearly black color streaked with white and irregular streaks i do not recollect seeing any parts of the body considerable interest was excited in 1848 by the accounts of a sea serpent seen by the captain and officers of her majesty's ship uh daedalus daedalus while on her passage from the cape of good hope to saint helena in latitude 24 degrees 44 uh, s and, and long 9 degrees 22 east in this case the usual uh, concomitants uh, of calm weather and absence of swell are wanting the official report to the uh, admi admiral the admiral the admiralty is as follows hms dadulus um, october 11th Sir, in reply to your letter of this day's date, requiring information as to the truth of a statement published in the Times newspaper of a sea serpent of extraordinary dimensions having been seen from Her Majesty's ship under my command on her passage from the East Indies, I have the honor to acquaint you for the information of my Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty that at 5 o'clock p.m. on the 6th of August, last in latitude 24 degrees 44 south and longitude 99 degrees 22 east, the weather dark and cloudy, wind fresh from the northwest with a long ocean swell from the southwest, the ship on the port tack heading northeast by north, something very unusual seen by Mr. 
Sartoris, midshipman, rapidly approaching the ship. Man, these guys are detailed. <laughs> Got every little uh, direction. Rapidly approaching the ship from before the beam. The circum uh, circumstance was immediately reported by him to the officer of the watch, Lieutenant Edgar Drummond, with whom and Mr. William Barrett, the master, I was at the time walking the quarterdeck. The ship's company were at supper. On our attention being called to the object, it was discovered to be an enormous serpent with head and shoulders kipped about four feet constantly above the surface of the sea. And as nearly as we could approximate by comparing it with the length of what our main topsail, uh, topsail yard would show in the water, there was at the very least 60 feet of the animal, uh, a fleur duel, no portion of which was in our perception used in propelling it through the water, either by vertical or horizontal undulation. It passed rapidly, but so close under our lee quarter that had it been a man of my acquaintance, I should have easily recognized his features with the naked eye. And it did not, either in approaching the ship or after it had passed our wake, deviate in the slightest degree from its course to the southwest, which it held on the, pa the pace of from 12 to 15 miles per hour, apparently on some determined purpose. The diameter of the serpent was about 15 or 16 inches behind the head with which without any doubt that of a snake and it was never during the 20 minutes that it continued inside of our glasses once below the surface of the water its color a dark brown with yellowish white about the throat it had no fins but something like the mane of a horse or rather a bunch of seaweed washed about its back it was seen by the quartermaster the boatswain mate, and the man at the wheel, in addition to myself and officers above mentioned. I have, I am having a drawing of the serpent made from a sketch taken immediately after it was seen, which I hope to have ready for transmission to my lord, my lord's commissioners of the Admiralty by tomorrow's post, uh, Peter uh, Mick, McHugh, we'll just call him Peter McHugh, to Admiral Sir W.H. Gage, GCB, Devonport. Uh, this drawing was figured in the Illustrated London News, an illustration of a short but very valuable memoir, and is reproduced upon a smaller scale here. A similar, perhaps the same monster was fallen in with at a slightly later date, 20 degrees further south, as described in a letter addressed to the editor of The Globe, Mary Ann of Glasgow, Glasgow, October 19, 1848. Sir, I have just reached this port on a voyage from Malta to Lisbon, and my attention having been called to report relative to an animal seen by the master crew of Her Majesty's ship, Daedalus, I take the liberty of communicating the following circumstance. When clearing out of the port of Lisbon about upon the 30th of September last, we spoke the American brig uh, Daphne of Boston, Mark Trelawney, master. She signaled for us to, to heave to, which we did, and standing close round her counter, lay to while the mate. Wait, let me say this again. And standing close round her counter, lay to while the mate boarded us with the jolly boat. All right. Well, not worded the best, or maybe it's just getting late. I don't know. And handed a packet of letters to be dispatched per first steamer for Boston on our arrival in England. The mate told me that when in latitude four degrees eleven south longitude 10 degrees 15 east wind dead north upon the 20th of september a most ex extraordinary animal had been seen from his description it had the appearance of a huge serpent or snake 
with a dragon's head. Immediately upon it being seen, one of the deck guns was brought to bear upon it, which having been charged with spike nails and whatever other pieces of iron could be got at the moment, was discharged at the animal. I don't know why they felt the need to shoot at it, but then only distant about 40 yards from the ship. It immediately reared its head in the air and plunged violently with its body, showing evidently that the charge had taken effect. The Daphne was to leeward at the time, but was put about on the starboard tack and stood towards the brute, which was seen foaming and lashing the water at a fearful rate. There, it was just minding its own business, and they came up and shot it with a bunch of rusty nails. Upon the, the brig nearing, however, it disappeared, and though evidently wounded, made rapidly off at the rate of 15 or 16 knots an hour, as was judged from its appearing several times upon the surface. The Daphne pursued for some time, but the night coming on, the master was obliged to put about and continue his voyage. From the description, that's the this is the first time we've seen anyone chase after it, which is interesting. It's like the first time that they just, they see one, hey, let's go shoot it with a bunch of rusty nails, and then they chase it, like, you know, interesting. From the description given by the mate, the brute must have been nearly 100 feet long, and they called it a brute. <laughs> and his account of it, of it agrees in every respect with that lately forwarded to the Admiralty by the master of the Daedalus, James Henderson Master. The accounts of the creature seen by the officers and crew uh, excited more than the usual attention given to these stories. For the professional status of the observers guaranteed at once the veracity of their statement and the probability of their judgment being accurate. Considerable correspondence ensued, including a very masterly attack upon the identification of the creature by Professor Owen, which will be again referred to further on. It also elicited another sea serpent story, which appeared in the Bombay Bi-Monthly Times for January 1849. I see in your paper of the 30th of December a paragraph in which a doubt is expressed of the authenticity of the account given by Captain McHugh of the Great Sea Serpent. When returning to India in the year 18, 1829, I was standing on the poop of the Royal Saxon in conversation with Captain Petrie, the commander of that ship. We were at a considerable distance southwest of the Cape of Good Hope in the usual track of vessels to this country, going rapidly along seven or eight knots in fine smooth water. It was in the middle of the day, and the other passengers were at luncheon, the man at the wheel, a steerage passenger, and ourselves being the only persons on the poop. Captain Petrie, that's a fun word to say when you're at midnight trying to stay awake. They were at the poop. Captain Petrie and myself at the same instant were literally fixed in astonishment by the appearance a short distance ahead of an animal which no more generally correct description could be given than that by Captain McHugh or McHugh. It passed within 35 yards of the ship without altering its course in the least, but as it came right abreast of us, it slowly turned its head towards us. Apparently about one third of the upper part of its body was above water in, in nearly its whole length. And we could see the water curling up on its breast as it moved along. But by what means it moved, we could not perceive. We saw that this apparently similar creature in its whole length, with the exception of a small portion of the tail, which was underwater. And by comparing its length with that of the Royal Saxon, about 600 feet, when exactly alongside it in passing, we calculated it to be in that, as well as its other dimensions, greater than the animal described by Captain Mick. Mick, uh, you ho. 
I am not quite sure. I pronounce his name differently every time I read it. I am not quite sure of our latitude and longitude at the time, nor do I exactly remember the date, but it was about the end of July. R. Davidson, superintending surgeon. Um, yeah. And then we see Camp 2, 3rd July, 1849. That's when he wrote it. 3rd July, 1849. I'll probably end in the next few minutes. Again, Lieutenant Colonel, I'm trying to find a good place to, to uh, pause. Again, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Steele of the Cold Stream Guards wrote to the zoologist, I have lately received the following account from my brother, Captain Steele, Ninth Lancers, who on his way out to India in the Barham saw the sea serpent. Thinking it might be interesting to you as corroborating the accounts of the Dadulus, I have taken the liberty of sending you the exact uh, extract from my brother's letter. On the 28th of August, in longitude 40 degrees east, latitude 37 degrees uh, 16 south, about half past two, we had all gone down below to get ready for dinner. When the first mate called us on deck to see a most extraordinary sight, about 500 yards from the ship, there was the head and neck of an enormous snake. We saw about 16 or 20 feet out of the water, and he spouted a long way from his head. Down his back, he had a crest like a cock's comb and was going very slowly through the water, but left a wake of about 50 or 60 feet as if dragging a long body after him. The captain put the ship off her course to run down to him, but as we approached him, he went down. His color was green with light spots. He was seen by everyone on board. My brother is no naturalist, and I think this is the first time the monster has ever been seen to spout. One of the officers of the ship wrote, On looking over the, the side of the vessel, I saw a most wonderful sight, which I shall re recollect as long as I live. His head appeared to be about 16 feet above the water, and he kept moving it up and down, sometimes showing his enormous neck, which was surmounted with a huge crest in the shape of a saw. So that's interesting. The other called it like a like a cock, um, you know. And other people, I think, did other people describe a seaweed? But he's saying it's like a rigid saw. It was surrounded by hundreds of birds, and we at first—that's interesting. And we at first thought it was a dead whale. He left a track in the water like the wake of a boat. This is the first time we saw um, hundreds of birds surround it. And from what we could see of his head and part of his body. We were led to think he must be about 60 feet in length, but he might be more. The captain kept the vessel away to get nearer to him. And when we were within a hundred yards, he slowly sank to the depth of the sea. While we were at dinner, he was seen again. The Times of February 5th, 1858 contains a statement made by Captain Harrington of the ship Castilian and certified to by his chief and second officers as follows. Let's see, how long is this account going to go? Oh, man, this one goes on. Okay, I might end it right there. and Maybe I'll just pick up right here uh, next time. I'll try to end it. I got about 40 pages in. So, uh, and I am, uh, yeah, I can't go much longer. So, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoyed reading that. And um, that's that was incredible stuff. And um, so... See you guys next week. We'll do this again. I'll hopefully finish it next week. And I am spent. Good night, guys.